Thank you, Stu, very much. Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see all of you on this precious Lord's Day, and uh, we're going to be moving on in our study of the book of Hosea. We're nearing the end. So if you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to Hosea chapter 14. Hosea 14. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, I'd invite you to do so. Hosea chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to Yahweh your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to Yahweh. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily, and he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of Yahweh are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Please be seated. Well, we have uh, the message today, and then, Lord willing, uh, we'll wrap up uh, the book of Hosea next week, I believe, should, uh, should just about do it. You know, uh, this reading, uh, for those of you that have been here throughout the whole se- uh, series, this, this reading of chapter 14 ha- has to come like this breath of fresh air, because so much of the book has been an indictment and words of judgment and threatenings of punishment and all of that upon uh, a nation who had turned her back upon her creator, upon her Lord, upon her master. And, of course, we, we started off at the beginning of the book with the very visible picture of Hosea and his family life, his wife uh, Gomer and, and her sinfulness, her wanderings, and the picture of that of 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 Israel uh, spiritually uh, prostituting herself, pursuing other lovers besides her own God, and here Gomer had done this with with Hosea, and children had come out of that those illicit relationships. It was just an ugly, ugly thing that that is pictured throughout this book. The ugliness of sin, the ugliness of rebellion, the ugliness of idolatry, the ugliness of the arrogant presumption against uh, the God who delivered, the God who uh, created, the God who uh, provided for everything that they needed, and yet Israel went looking everywhere else. And we've looked at this 
not only from a historical standpoint, but we've also been able to draw a lot of applications to our own walk with the Lord and, and try to consider the warnings that are here and take them to heart when we think about our own relationship with Him as a church, individually, um, and, and, and Lord willing, be encouraged not to uh, follow the pattern of Gomer, not to follow the pattern of Israel in those days. Now, last week, um, well, we've been talking about this last section. We're, we're not trying to cover every single verse. We've been looking at this kind of, uh, as like as uh, Elder Mike likes to talk about, the 30,000 foot view. We've sort of taken a, well, maybe not 30,000, maybe more like 15,000 feet. Uh, a little closer to the ground with Hosea, because we've looked at some of the passages rather closely. But in this last big section that runs up through chapter 13, oh, the, as the Lord has gone into the details of Israel's sin against him, and the, the promises of punishment and so on that were there, uh, it all kind of got wrapped up there in chapter 9, and of course it's referred uh, to throughout this whole section of the judgment that was going to come upon them. And if you were here last week or you listened to it online, chapter 9 is, uh, unlike chapter 14, is not a breath of fresh air. It's a, it's a breath of hot, fiery judgment that would come upon those who persisted in their rebellion. And we looked at that. Uh, their prosperity would depart from them. Their enemies would destroy them. They would be deceived by the prophets that they went to for guidance. The, their uh, children and offspring would be affected. They'd not be able to bear children. The Lord would shut up the wombs there and ultimately he would disinherit them from uh, the, the promised uh, blessings that uh, he had been actually been promising them since the days of Moses and even before with Abraham in a more general fashion. Because there are punishments, there are curses that go along with as a result of disobedience. So it's the way the Lord built into the system. But we're talking about Israel's road to restoration. And last week when we talked, uh, when we spoke of that from chapter 9, you know, we don't... <laughs> When we get to wanting to restore things and getting back to the way things were or getting things better, we don't generally start off saying, yes, the way that we are going to make this all better is punishment and judgment. That's step number one, which makes all of us uh, say, well, in that case, Lord, maybe I'd rather not. But the fact is, is that we need to have our sins purged from us we need that judgment. It is, it is the judgment of a faithful God that begins to restore us, that brings us to the end of ourselves, that humbles us before him. Because we're stubborn, just like Israel was. Stubborn, not wanting to return. We, he, we have, he, he, he needs to get our attention in a way that uh, we will sit up and take notice and Respond, And so he is the great physician, but he is the one who often wounds before he binds up, as Jesus spoke about. It's the same principle spoken of here. Israel needed to be wounded. The, rebellions, the rebellious needed to be wounded before they could be restored, before they could be healed. 
So today we're going to look at just the first three verses of chapter 14. I read it all um, for the context's sake, but we're going to look at just the first three verses and see the second step, the second destination, if you will, on the road to restoration, and that is repentance. And you might think that that's a pretty logical next step after judgment, after punishment. Uh, repentance would be the goal, right? Uh, parents, uh, when we discipline our children, um, it is not to exacerbate them, uh, exasperate them, sorry, get the right word, not to exasperate them, not to make them um, so upset that they never want to live with us again or whatever. It is to get their attention so they understand who's actually uh, calling the shots in the house and to help them understand, okay, I need a course correction. I need to fix this so the relationship between me and mom and dad can be restored. But what you're looking for out of that punishment is not hopelessness because of the cruelty or the severity of your punishment. Right? You're not to do that. But you're looking for the goal of their repentance for the things that caused the breach in the relationship to begin with. And that is exactly what the Lord does. And we see... Uh, Israel's response there in verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 14 is uh, exactly the sort of response that we should have. But before we get there, uh, in, in a little bit of depth, we're going to look at some of the other uh, uh, statements that are made in this larger section here in the second half of the book. And, and note that this is something that the Lord desires of us earnestly and tenderly. Take a look at chapter 10 and verse 12. In chapter 10 and verse 12, the Lord says to Israel, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Now that word, that phrase steadfast love, you might remember reading it earlier from the book of Nehemiah in the scriptural affirmation of acceptance there that the Lord is a God who's ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And Nehemiah is using the same word that Hosea uh, records the Lord's word here uh, in uh, chapter 10 and verse 12. That steadfast love translates the Hebrew word chesed, which, has, which means his covenant loyalty. Sometimes uh, other translations uh, will speak of his mercies, and we'll translate that. Uh, that word in that way. It's simply referring to the fact that God will not fail in his promises to his people. His covenant promises are sure. And so there where we see, you, if you sow for yourselves righteousness, you will reap steadfast love. Remember what we said last week that, uh, as a reminder that the Lord is not speaking to the heathen, those that are outside of the covenant. He's speaking to a people with whom he has entered into covenant and whom presumably know what the terms of that covenant is and have gone ahead in their rebellion contrary to the terms of that covenant and now are suffering the consequences of it. So this verse is not about, well, if you just do good stuff, God will be happy with you and you'll be saved. That's not what he's saying. 
what he's talking about is a return to the covenant relationship in whole, uh, in wholeness, in righteousness, in in joy and in comfort and all the blessings that that God promised for those that walked according to the terms of the covenant that He's already entered into with them. So this is about returning to a relationship, not initiating one. I just want to make that distinction here. But in chapter, this, uh, this verse, verse 12, goes on to a, a phrase that is probably one that you've heard before in, in many, perhaps many sermons. I've heard uh, quite a few sermons refer to this verse, at least this phrase in this verse, uh, many times. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek Yahweh, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Interesting how it starts with righteousness and ends with righteousness. And you see that when you're sowing righteousness, it's not your righteousness that's in view. It's the Lord's righteousness and it's the righteousness he gives you. Uh, but as he does that, now he's saying to them, look, it's time. He's calling to them and saying, it's time. And the time to seek the Lord is now. The word fallow is not uh, all that common a word uh, anymore in current, in the conversational uh, English, but it is still used in certain segments of society, particularly in agriculture. Uh, it just means a fallow, fallow ground is ground that is good ground, but it hasn't been plowed. It's been let rest sometimes deliberately, sometimes just from neglect. In this case, um, neglect seems to be uh, kind of the idea, if you look at the context of the book of Hosea. There's an interesting uh, structure here, something that in, is done quite a bit in Hebrew. The Hebrew language uh, loves word plays, loves to stack words and stack ideas for emphasis. So if you look at this literally in the Hebrew, it basically says, uh, instead of break up your fallow ground, it's, it's using the same, it's, the imperative is the same as the nominative, it's just different, different form. Basically saying, uh, till your tillable, plow your plowable, if you wanted to read it literally. You've got no excuse, in other words. It's not like I'm, the Lord is saying to you, I want you to go plow that granite boulder over there. Plow what I've given you, and you'll reap the benefits of it. Don't neglect it any longer. Now is the time. If you wait to till it, the ground can become too hard to break up in, in hot summers. Um, judgment has happened. Uh, judgment sort of loosened things up. But if you don't respond to the judgments that have come, if you don't respond to his corrections, but you harden your heart against them, it becomes harder to plow. Remember years ago, uh, when I was in high school, we lived in Southern Oregon. My mother will remember this very well. <clears throat> we had a great big, was it a Troy built tiller, I think. One of those rear, big rear tine ones. It was, it was a monster. Um, great tiller. Um, 
The ground that we lived on, we lived on this rise. It was, I suppose, good to build a house on solid foundation. We've certainly had a house built upon the rock because that's about what the ground was. It was decomposed granite. Anybody ever had decomposed granite you've tried to dig in? Oh, and, and the hotter it got, uh, the harder it got. And I remember, of course, okay, I was a little bit lighter then than I am now. But I remember trying to till that ground for our garden. And all the tines did was skip across the top. I've got my whole weight riding on it, and we're just, I'm just bouncing across the, the garden plot. I don't have enough weight to, to, to... I'm trying to do everything I can to get it to dig in, and it wouldn't. It was so hard. Israel had been very, very hard. The Lord has come in and has loosened it, loosened the hardness of their hearts through this judgment. And it's like, now get to it and plow while you can. So you don't return back to your rebellion. You don't return back to your hardness. There's a huge emphasis here uh, in, in, throughout this book, uh, but uh, you see it here in verse 12 of chapter 10, summarized very nicely, but the, the emphasis upon sowing and reaping is throughout this book. You might remember, those of you that have been with us from the very beginning of this series, that, do you remember the name of Hosea's first son? the legitimate one, Jezreel, which means the Lord or God sows. And then, of course, the other children's names are also reflective. We'll refer to those uh, a little later on. But this it begins right there at the very beginning and all the way through this book, sowing and reaping. What God sows, he will harvest. So even in... As, as dismal as Hosea's situation was in his family life, even that very name, Jezreel, well, there's an element of hope there that Hosea could cling to that because truly the Lord's uh, purposes would not be undone. Uh, this idea of till the tillable or plow the plowable called to my mind a verse that is probably... Uh, um, very familiar to you. It's from the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, where he's quoting from Isaiah 49. Uh, and uh, he says, for, uh, for he says, verse 2, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So the Lord is encouraging them in their repentance to no longer delay. Anyone here like to admit they're wrong? Go ahead, raise your hand. What? No hands? What's wrong with you people? Yeah, none of us do, do we? And to have to go to someone whom we have wronged and say, I've wronged you, uh, is something that can turn the knees of the mightiest man into water. Because it, 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 we are coming to the end of ourselves and without excuse saying, I have sinned, I have wronged, and I want to turn from it 
I regret it, I'm sorry for it, and then proceed from that to seeking forgiveness. It's, it's coming to the end of ourselves. It's saying that the path that we have been on uh, is, and, 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 and in which we have invested ourselves heavily because of the decisions we've made is the wrong one. And to turn and go the other way takes the grace of God. It, it's why you have to pray for repentance. It's not something you can just work up for on your own. Um, the Lord has to help you do it. But the time is now. The time was now for Israel. The time's now for us to not harden ourselves, to plow the plowable ground that God has, has uh, given to us and uh, conditioned, uh, conditioned for us by his corrections, by, this, by afflictions, by the trials that he brings our way, the punishments that he brings into our lives so that we will turn unto him. This is a tender call. Seek now. Please, come. Sow for yourselves. Break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek Yahweh. The covenant name is used there. Now, in chapter 11, there's another component to this that, uh, that the Lord brings in. He's not just being um, the harsh taskmaster here. If you look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, all of a sudden, in the midst of all of this, uh, words of condemnation and urging uh, to turn from their, their sin, all of a sudden, it's, it's a change of gears. When Israel was a child, verse 1 says, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. They didn't know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I eased their burdens. That's the one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. The Lord, in his call to them, it speaks to the tenderness of this call. It's not just shut up and do what I say. Right? This is, of course, a miserable way to discipline Anybody. The Lord doesn't do that. The Lord reminds them of the history of his love for them. When he says, I, I, uh, I helped them. It, the idea here is that he, he says, I ran to their aid. That's the... It's the, the Lord is speaking of his eagerness, not his reluctance to love them and care for them. Now, this should uh, bring about some, some shame on Israel's part to realize how eagerly they've run away from him instead of responding to his love. But the Lord is reminding them that he's not just being arbitrary. He's not just making rules for them because he loves to make rules and he loves to make their lives miserable. His call to faithfulness is in the context of an eternal, loving father who has only ever done good for them. 
And they have responded, of course, uh, most inappropriately. Uh, if, uh, if, of course, that's a huge, gross understatement. So keep that in mind. When you're coming to the Lord, um, you're not just coming in your re- as in returning to him in repentance. You're not just returning to a hard taskmaster. Do you remember the prodigal son's uh, account? Think about that for a minute. And think about the prodigal son's demeanor, his actions. Everything was full of arrogance and self. He wanted what he wanted. And he went off and he spent it all and he rebelled really against his father, took advantage of his father. And though even though his father had provided for him all along, had raised him, granted him an inheritance, all these things. He went off and spent the inheritance. And what is his fear when he comes to himself after he's had the judgment hit him? His, his, uh, his heart is now in a plowable condition. And he, he starts to plow it. Okay, I'm going to return. I'm going to return to my father. I'm going to humble myself before him. I'm going to uh, beg him just to, just to take me in and, and feed me. I, I, don't, I don't need, I, I'm not looking for anything else, uh, any special favors, not, not even trying to return to being a son. Just make me a servant. That's fine. Whatever you want. He's plowing that ground, which is, is proper. But he's, his motivations are, are, uh, are stirred up by a fear. He thinks of his father, and perhaps he did. Perhaps this was one of the motivations behind why he was so eager to leave, so eager to cast off his familial obligations. We're not told anything about, you know, it's a story. So we're not told anything about the details of how the father raised him and how strict the household was or anything else. But I I think you could possibly extrapolate pretty safely that the father uh, was not someone who thought being um, uh, a wastrel and um, uh, an insubordinate or anything like that was okay. I rather expect um, that there was some element of discipline and structure that, that the sons were expected to abide by, and that young man chafed under it. He wanted to be free. He wanted to go do whatever he wanted. And I think I can say that safely because of what he ended up doing. So he probably thought of his father as a strict disciplinary taskmaster who was always hard on him, never listened to him, never thought anything he did was right, etc., etc., etc. And he needed to be reminded of the Father's love. So when he shows up, he decides to return. <laughs> and you can picture it in your mind's eye, he's coming back with fear and trembling in the hopes that he doesn't just get thrown out on his ear which is what he deserved. And what does the father do? He runs to meet him. That's the same kind of eagerness that we see in this this, uh, chapter here. Um, I loved him. I called him. 
uh, I taught him, I took him up, I healed him, I led them, I, I eased their burdens, I bent down to them, I fed them. They need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded day in and day out. When the Lord, when the Lord brings afflictions and trials into our lives and, and he's refining us, it can be like, Lord, what are you doing? Don't you love me? Take it easy on me. And yet the Lord is refining us out of love. The one who created us, the one who sent his son to die for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, God loved us. We love him because he first loved us. I mean, how many more verses do I need to quote? I mean, that's everywhere in the scriptures. But Israel needed this reminder, and so do we, that God loved them. And that is why he disciplined them, to call them back to himself so that communion could be restored. Now in chapter 14, 1 through 3, Hosea sets forth what repentance looks like. These sacrifices of a repentant heart. The command there begins, return, O Israel. We'll start there and then, and then look at this uh, piece by piece as we go through these, first, these three verses. The word return is not a complicated word be used in any kind of common thing, a common context where the idea of turning back from a course you are following is in mind. Um, whether it's a course you're following or a person you're following or whatever, it means turning around and going the other way to stop following and return back to where you began. When it's used figuratively, which it, it is in this particular passage, in the sense of spiritual relationships, because that's what uh, is in view here. A turning back uh, to God, um, uh, in one respect, you can turn back from God or turn back to God, depending on the context. Here, this is a return back to. Um, instead of uh, turn away from the apostasy, which is a turning back from God, this is repenting or turning back from evil unto God. And let's think about what this, that's a core concept, by the way, of what repentance is all about. It's the core concept of repentance. You can't say I'm repenting and keep doing the same stuff. Uh, crying crocodile tears doesn't cut it. That's not repentance if you keep doing the same stuff. No repentance has really happened. And there can be regrets, there can be some momentary sorrows, there can be some, you know, well-intentioned attaboys or whatever, I'm going to do this. But un unless and until there's an actual change of direction, you can't honestly say, well, I have absolutely repented of my sin. Anybody ever have trouble with sinning again? The same thing? What does that say about the nature of our repentance? In our fallen condition, even as we're redeemed, 
It's a struggle. Well, Paul talks about that struggle, doesn't he, in the book of Romans. So our repentance is imperfect. But uh, as the Lord sanctifies us by his grace, more and more that repentance can be um, stronger and more certain and more deliberate and uh, more enduring by his grace as we grow uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is certainly, though, we need to have in mind what it is we're talking about uh, when, from the get-go, that repentance is not about remaining in your sin and then crying out to God how much you love him after you've said, I'm sorry. So with that, let's take a look at the various components of this. Um, in verse 1 and 2, uh, the first element is one that we would think of as pretty obvious. I think everyone would think of this, and that has to do with confession of sin. Look what uh, we see there. Um, You've stumbled because of your iniquity, so take with you words and return to Yahweh, and there's that same word again, and say to him, take away all iniquity. So there's this, this recognition of and confession of before your covenant God of your sins. You know, the Apostle John in his first epistle makes it pretty clear that the one who says, I love God, but goes on sinning is a liar. Right? So that needs to be taken very, very seriously when we confess our sins. The promise is there that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us believe that. Let us lay our sins out before him, confess them before him, not try to pretend we're something we're not before him as if that would do any good anyway. Confession is something that needs to take place uh, as part of our repentance before the Lord. And then look also in chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 14 and verse 2, where uh, you see the phrase, accept what is good. Now this is kind of a loaded uh, uh, request. Uh, for the very simple reason that there is none who does good, no, not one. And that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So how can the Lord accept from us what is good when we can't offer anything that's good? At least not in the absolute sense. Well, what we can offer are those things that God requires of us to offer, can we not? Sacrifices of praise, obedience, um, uh, grace, mercy, and gentleness, and kindness towards others, um, and, and so on and so on. All of those kinds of things that the Lord requires, us of, uh, requires of us to do as believers, those things, even though they are done imperfectly by us, nonetheless, they are good, and that is in, to the extent that they reflect uh, the character of the God who commanded them. I had a teacher, a professor in college, uh, that uh, now with the Lord... Um, in fact, some of you may remember him. He was here. He visited here and did a retreat for us uh, some years ago, Dr. Edward Pinozian. But uh, he used to say, what is good is godly, and what is godly is good. And it's a profound, uh, simple statement, but very profound thought. We use that term, um, and, this, and this is why my family will tell you I drive them crazy when they when, some, when they or somebody else says, hey, I'm good, you know, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. And what do I always say? 
There's none good but God. Yeah. So just get off your pedestal. Get deal with that. You might be well, but you're not good. Uh, at least not in that absolute sense. Well, we can do those things that God calls us to do that are reflections of his character and they are godly. And if they're godly, they are good. And, the, and, and Israel is saying, this prayer is basically, as I do those things that you command of me to do, by your grace, accept them as acceptable sacrifices unto you. Did you ever wonder why um, this thing that we're doing right here is called a worship service? Who are we serving by doing what we're doing? You're serving God by praising Him, by bringing your petitions before Him, by edifying one another in the course of our fellowship and communion together. By attending to his word, it's showing honor and respect to him. That's an act of service. Anybody here? Okay. It's okay. I will not take this personally. Has anyone's mind wandered during the course of this sermon so far? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to know who you are. <laughs> I, know, I know it has. Even from a standard speech communication theory standpoint, I know it has because I can only speak about a, well, I can speak fast, but I generally speak 120 to 140 words a minute. Your brain can go 450 words a minute. So you got all kinds of spare time where your brain's just kind of dealing with all kinds of stuff. Shopping list. I'm not even gonna go, no, I'm not even gonna start that because <laughs> then you'll really go off, oh yeah. Glad he mentioned that. I better write that down on my calendar. Right? So we're serving the Lord. It's good to sit in, under the hearing of the word. And yet none of us do it well. And yet it's required of us to do. How about our communion with each other? Are we always as sensitive to one another as we should be in the needs that are around us? No. Do we care about one another? Yes. Is that a good thing? Yes, it is good because it's godly to care for one another. Do we do it well? Often not. How about singing praises unto the Lord? Is that good? I know there's a, I, there's a few of you and I'm going to, I'll suddenly I'm taking my eyes away from the congregation. I'm not going to connect with anybody. There's a few of you whose voices would probably not be characterized at least by yourselves as good. And yet the Lord commands of us to make a joyful noise to the Lord and to sing songs of praise to him. It is something that glorifies him. It is good. And yet, even the best of us, voices crack. We fade out on what it is we're singing and we, just, we, can, we can descend into the feeling of the, of the song rather than thinking about the lyrics and so on and so forth. And we can not do it well. This prayer is, ought to be one that's part of our repentance. Lord, uh, it's coming out of humility. It's not saying, look what I'm bringing in you, God, because it's so awesome. It's received back to you the gift that you've given. 
receive, accept from me what is good, this petition for his grace. And then also in verse two, um, uh, wrapped up in this phrase, accept what is good, and then also with, we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. This praise for acceptance. Um, to acknowledge that he does receive us. He's promised that he will. So there ought to be praises in our repentance that the Lord is serious about, re, about, about accepting those who uh, return to him. Now, there's an interesting little play on words here. We will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. This bulls or bull calves, um, there's a, to pay with the, uh, pay with bulls in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, those translators uh, use the Greek phrase, um, accept what is good, and we will pay the fruit. Yep, we will pay the fruit. What in the world? And why did they translate it that way? Well, the word for bull calves and fruit are very similar in form. And remember how the Hebrews love to do word plays? And sometimes it's not necessarily that they uh, can have double meanings. It just sometimes even the appearance of the word, the similarity of the consonants or so on, they'll use that to make a point. Take a look down at verse 8 of chapter 14. He says, it's, he says, got nothing to do with idols. It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. It's not an accident. The pay with fruit, and that's probably why the, the uh, translators of the Septuagint went with that to, to draw that picture full circle. Now, bulls, of course, and bull calves, sure. Um, the, speaking about sacrifices, but notice that it's not just we're going to pay you with bulls, period. It says we're going to pay you with uh, uh, bulls, the vows of our lips. This is about, in the New Testament, I believe this would, we could very easily go to the fruit of the Spirit and talk about the, the, the matter of our lives uh, that are godly and right and reflect his character that he gives to us and enables us to practice. The, the fruit, the, the, the term first fruits is one I'm sure is familiar to everybody here, having to do with uh, the, the nature of the sacrifices that we give to God of being our best. Taking it right off the top, first things first goes to God. That's kind of what's going on here. We've made vows. We're in a relationship with you. Essentially, what this prayer is saying, or what this statement is saying, is we're going to show by our actions that we mean it. And there's praise here for being accepted uh, because the things that he enables us to do, the things that he enables us to bring, Lo and behold, are from him. 
So we're not making this up on our own. We're not coming up with our own righteousness. We're not coming up with our own sacrifices. We're bringing back to him what he has given to us. From him comes our fruit. Now, um, so much for the, this is the, you know, some very personal, I'm confessing my sins. I'm asking for his grace. I'm praising him for accepting me in spite of my, my uh, failures and weaknesses and sins as I strive to, to uh, return and walk appropriately according to his law. But, you know, a lot of believers can have that aspect, but then have no problem linking themselves up with those who are not walking that way and don't want to walk that way. Um, and so in verse 3, this is an important part of, of full repentance. We could... I think most of us are pretty familiar with the concept of repentance, but I think we're also pretty familiar with the idea that we can repent so far and then retain to ourselves whatever we think will help us get along in life that maybe not maybe it doesn't seem quite so heinous to our sensibilities. And we go along and unite ourselves with, uh, with the world to one extent or another in either... Are um, just our heart's desires and what we long for and what we look around in the world to find our, whether it's money or power or position or whatever, or actual connections, you know, um, with others that are not walking according to the word of God. But here in verse three, it says, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. Now, for those of you that own horses, this is not an indictment against horseback riding. I think you know that. This has to do with trusting in the military might of others to, to get ahead in the world. And Israel had a real history of doing that, did they not? They made all kinds of alliances with Assyria, with Egypt, and with Babylon. They made, and, and any number of other places that they could make an alliance so that uh, they would not be attacked or they'd get protected from somebody else who was oppressing them or whatever else. Instead of trusting in the Lord, instead of recognizing that the battle is the Lord, instead of listening to his promises that he will protect you from the oppressor, they went to uh, human sources for their protection instead. If you are walking in repentance before the Lord, it will be reflected in that you reject wicked alliances. Uh, with those, you, you will not... Um, strive to do God's work in the world's way and with the world's approval. Uh, a pastor up in uh, Toronto area just uh, appeared in court this week. He's facing, I believe it was, uh whew. I can't remember how many years of imprisonment and like $50,000 fine, uh, fines um, because um, he refused to uh, adhere to the tyrannical uh, rules that shut down churches there in Ontario. And that's happened across Canada numerous times. Um, but he appeared in court this past week and he, he made some... Uh, some excellent statements, but basically reflecting here, we're not going to look to the world to tell us how to do God's work. We're going to depend upon him. 
It doesn't mean he was careless about health issues or anything else. What it meant was is that he was not going to let a human government dictate to him how to worship God. Now, the case, he got, I think he got, ended up, uh, they did a slap on the wrist, a token thing, basically to say whatever. Kind of like, and uh, all, of the, all of the great big scary things that they were trying to do to threaten him to knuckle under uh, didn't work and they, they backed off. Praise the Lord. And he's no longer in jail and all of that good stuff. But, you know, there's too many that are willing to say, let's go look to the powers that be to help us. There's a lot of that, um, not even in this kind of situation like that he was facing where there's that sort of regulation. It's just uh, the church looks to government, all the, the church at large often looks to government to help them do their work, to uh, come alongside with aid programs, um, to, to uh, minister to the community. We're going to go, we're going to take... Uh, FEMA funds so that we can go feed the homeless. It's like, uh, we need to be saying to the wicked, um, just like Nehemiah did to Sam Ballot and Tobias, you have no part or parcel in the work of the Lord. Thank you anyway. We'll do it ourselves. And trust in the Lord to do that work. And we still need to do that work. But we need to trust the Lord to do it ourselves and trust him to provide for it. That kind of thing. And then just... Uh, boy, the, boy the, all kinds of applications here from what books you read, from everything else as to uh, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go about doing God's work in man's way. Comes up in counseling all the time, comes up in just personal relationships, comes up in household practices, comes up all those kinds of things. There's all kinds of books out there and authors and speakers that can give you all kinds of great things to do of how you should run your household that has nothing to do with the word of God. So we've got to be discerning. And, but part of repentance is that when we know we've been in those kind of alliances, to turn from them, reject them, and return unto depending upon the Lord alone. And that goes along with verse 3. Also, we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. So there's a part of, uh, next part of repentance is abandoning those idols, the things that we've erected. My, it's so important to me. This is my, my, whether it's my image whether it's my knowledge, whether it's my position in life, whether it's my wealth, whether it's my family, whether it's my uh, gender, nationality, you, you name it. All those things that we hold on to so tightly and think that, that uh, that's what makes me me and that's how I'm going to get along in life. My power, my wisdom, my energy, my ideas. It's like, sure, you should have energy, you should use your power to uh, do the things that God calls you to do, but not create your own path. Don't call uh, by your actions. I don't think anybody here would go, well, I, I'm pretty sure nobody in this congregation here is going to uh, create something and then go bow down to it. But all of us are susceptible to the temptation to look to ourselves for answers and go, yep, that's where my solution is. Which is essentially the same thing. So we need to abandon 
our idols, to the work of our hands, and return to our Lord. And then the final aspect of repentance wraps up uh, in this, what I'm calling a recognition of status before God. I mean, this last phrase, it almost seems kind of odd. In you, the orphan finds mercy. What does that have to do with anything? Well, I'll tell you what it has to do with it. It's Israel recognizing, um, apart from the Lord, they would have been cast out in a field left to die. They had no standing. But in God, their family. In you, Lord, the orphan finds mercy. It's a recognition of their status before God. It's not coming and say, yep, I deserve this God because of who I am. Remember, Israel had a real problem with this. Because of, you know, they had the prophets, they had, you know, Moses, Abraham, Moses, they had the, the prophets, they had all of the, the, the temple ceremonies and all of the structure of society and all these other things. They were very proud of it. It set them apart from the world. They thought, many of them would think that um, they uh, were superior to the rest of the world because they had been given that revelation. They'd been given that role. Instead of saying to the Lord, we're, we, we deserve nothing. The Lord had to remind them, your father was a Hittite, your mother was an Amorite. You got no lineage that's worth anything. But Israel forgot that. And we can forget that. We need to remember, again, some of those verses that we t- talked about earlier, that we loved him because he first loved us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That, that the Lord loves and builds up the, the things that the world despises, the weak, the frail, the despised things. These are the things, these are the ones that the Lord exalts so that he gets the glory, not us. You may remember, uh, and I mentioned this uh, just a bit ago, where, about the names of the other two children that Homer, or that Hosea and Gomer, that Gomer had with um, her other lovers. Do you remember their names? Lo Ami. No people. The other one, Lo Ruhama. No mercy. You think that, do you see why that verse is there? Why that statement's there? In you, the orphan shall find mercy. It's pulling all that strings together. Saying, yeah. In a sense, in, a, in, in essence, it's repeating the promise that was made back in chapter three, I think it was, where uh, the Lord says, there will come a day when the one who was called Lo Ami will be called Ami. The one who had, was called Lo Ruhama will be called Ruhama. The one that said, no, you know, no, no, uh, no people, they'll be my people. The one that said, no mercy, I'll show them mercy. So it's come full circle here at the end. But it happens in the context of repentance. Not an arrogant presumption to keep going. These promises that are given here uh, to the repentant are, are beautiful. Uh, as, as I read them on in chapter 14, they're full of the love of the creator for his own. And that love 
is the foundation of everything. Our election, our calling, our justification, our sanctification, our glorification. The Lord delights in the fellowship of his people. But that fellowship and communion will not happen unless we've turned from our sin and cling to him. But when that happens, the promises of his mercy are marvelous. And by God's grace, we'll take a look at those next week as we wrap up this this, uh, uh, wonderful book by taking a look at the latter half of chapter 14. So with those thoughts in mind, let's uh, look to our Lord in prayer as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your mercies. Thank you for calling us to repentance. Thank you for preparing our hearts ahead of time to grant us repentance. Lord, as you regenerate us, you've prepared our hearts. The punishment that Jesus bore made it possible for us to dwell with you, commune with you. But as the as the soil has been prepared and now it's plowed as we turn from our sins unto you. Lord, I pray that you would grant us mercy and restore to us the joy of our salvation. We look forward to looking next week, Lord, at these marvelous promises of your mercy. Lord, uh, fill us with joy and anticipation of that as we, as we uh, conclude the study of this wonderful book of Hosea. Lord, let this not be merely an academic exercise, but may it truly be that as we consider the lessons of this book, that by your grace, we will turn from our sins, turn from our tendency to be idolaters and wanderers and return to you and cling to you with all of our might. We thank you, Father, that you will receive us as you promised. In Jesus' name.